All right, if you have your notebooks, page 11, we'll get to that in just a bit. And I want to remind you of some things that are coming up. One is this Wednesday is a backyard fellowship. It's at 6.30. It's going to be at the Brinkley's in Gibraltar. We have maps to their place out on the information center desk. And we ask you to bring a side dish, a dessert, and a two-liter beverage. The church will provide the main dish, and we've been to the Brinkley's at least two years. I think it's been two years. We always have a great time over at their place. They're marvelous hosts. So if you can make it, I encourage you to do that. Bring a lawn chair with you as well, uh, because uh, we don't have enough picnic tables and all of that for everybody. So bring your own chair if you would, and we'll look forward to a great time this coming Wednesday at the Backyard Fellowship at the Brinkley's, 6.30. And then coming up in the uh, next few weeks, uh, one is on Tuesday night, uh, August the 26th, 26th of this month, 7 o'clock in this room, is an informational meeting for men who have any interest in the Bible Study Fellowship weekly study that's going to start on September the 9th. So guys, uh, if you think you might be interested in that uh, and you did not attend the informational meeting we had back in June, then you need to attend the one that's on the 26th. BSF requires that you attend one of those two informational meetings in order for you to be able to attend the weekly studies. Now, if you attend the informational meeting and decide it's not for you, that's okay. So attending that doesn't obligate you. But if you think you might want to, you have to come to the informational meeting. If you weren't at the one in June, come to the one on Tuesday, the 26th, 7 o'clock here. On September the 1st, that's Labor Day this year, and we'll have our Labor Day picnic. That is at Lake Erie Metro Park. Uh, We've had our Memorial Day picnic and Labor Day picnic at that same spot the last few years, so many of you are familiar with uh, where our shelter is there. Uh, But if you are not, there's a map uh, inserted in your program today to tell you that. You also need to make note that in order to get your vehicle into the park, it costs $7 unless you have uh, a sticker on your windshield for that. And uh, we ask you to bring the same thing for that, same items for that, that we do for the Backyard Fellowship, a side dish, a dessert, and and a beverage. So that's uh, September 1st, Labor Day at noon at the uh, Lake Erie Metro Park. September the 6th is a Saturday, and that is our next newcomer's brunch at our house. Those of you that have never been to a brunch at our house, consider yourself a newcomer. You may have been here for attending the church for a while and never been able to schedule for one of the prior brunches, and we would love to have you to come, even if you have been here for a while. Uh, But those who have never been to a brunch at our house, it is a time for us just to get to know you and you us better. There's no program. I don't go through any material. It's just brunch and uh, enjoying each other's company. However, if you have any questions about our church, I would be happy to answer those as best I can. And that's often the case when folks attend those brunches that are new to the church. They have some questions about why we do things the way we do. And so uh, we would be happy to try to address anything that you, you have like that. But we need to know who all is coming. So that's September 6th, 10 a.m. to about noon. And to let us know that you're coming, stop at the Information Center desk and give them your name, and they will give you an invitation that has our phone number and our address and a reminder of the date and time on it. So if you haven't already stopped by there to get that, uh, you can do that uh, today. And then uh, I'll go quickly for the uh, remaining couple. Uh, The next day, September the 7th, starts our four-week newcomers orientation. So as that name suggests, it is for newcomers to our church, and it is an orientation to our church. It is four weeks in a row, so the four Sundays of September, 
That'll be during this hour, the 11 o'clock hour, in another uh, part of the building. And I will lead that class through a set of 63 pages of material uh, to tell you who we are, where we've come from, uh, what we believe, where we hope to go in the future, why we do things the way we do. We try to give you as much information as we can to help you make a decision as to whether or not uh, CBC would be the place uh, that, you, that you think God would have your family uh, join and, and serve and grow. So mark that, Sunday the 7th during the 11 o'clock hour, the 7th, 14th, 21st, and 28th. And then the evening of the 28th, this is my last announcement, the evening of the 28th is our annual celebration dinner in this room. Every year in September, we have what we call our celebration dinner. And the reason is, is because it's really an anniversary dinner. Our church started in September. And so every September, after we started, we have had a, a dinner in celebration of God's grace to our church the prior year. So it's just a, a time of food and, and fellowship, but it is the one time during the year that you have opportunity to give testimony of God's grace in your life for the prior year. And so the main component of the program is just hearing from God's people and being encouraged by what God is doing in, in your lives. Uh, now, that is going to be catered for us, as it has been the last few years, by Tijuana's uh, Kitchen, and uh, there are tickets for that. The tickets are $5 uh, each and $20 maximum for, for a family. So if you have five people in your family, you don't pay $25, you still pay a maximum of $20. Those tickets are available in the Resource Center, so stop in the Resource Center, and you can uh, buy your tickets and attend the celebration dinner on the 28th. All right. That's all of my announcements. If you're on page 11 in your notebook for Where is God When It Hurts, <clears throat> and you see up at the top we are in a second section, section 2, which deals with the purposes of suffering. We started this section, section 2, last week looking at the inward <clears throat> direction of suffering. That is, the things that God does in us when he allows suffering to come into our lives. And today's lesson is about the forward direction of suffering. The things that God will accomplish through us, looking forward as a result of his allowing difficulty, adversity in our lives. When I look at this section, the purposes of suffering, and I think about purpose as it relates to difficulty, I think about how very important it is to know that there, in fact, is a purpose in whatever you do and whatever you're undergoing, even if you don't know what that purpose is. It's extremely important for you to know that there is a purpose, even if you don't know what the purpose is. Let me give a couple of examples. In academics, if you're taking a class, and you have a teacher or professor teaching that class, you want to know that there's some end game here. There's some purpose for you spending the time, perhaps spending money, to take this class. And that there is some benefit that is going to come out of you putting the effort and the money and the time into taking that particular course. So you don't want, right, busy work, you don't want a professor or a teacher who just gives you stuff to do because they have to give you stuff to do. One of the reasons that I like taking evening classes when I was in college is because I found that the evening professors were generally people who had a daytime job. 
And people with a daytime job had a different mentality than people who's, who's, who were tenured and their only lot in life was to make your life miserable. To think of ways to give you stuff to do. So we all know teachers and professors who have busy work and you don't like busy work. You want to know that there's a purpose to the work that you're doing. That's in academics. Take another realm, athletics. If you're involved on a team, you want to know, have confidence, that if the coach tells you to go through a set of drills, that that set of drills actually relates to what your team is going to be doing in that coming season, that it's actually going to have some benefit, that when he's shown up for a, a practice and he's going to put you through all of this stuff, that he's actually thought about the sequence that he's going to have you do them and the things that are most important for you to do because there's a purpose to them. And if you have that confidence in a teacher and you have that confidence in a coach, then you're willing to go through the difficulty, the adversity, the pain because you know there's a good purpose for all of this. Now that same thing can and should be applied to the Lord, to God. Do you believe that God's a good teacher? Do you believe that God's a good coach? Do you believe that God prepares his assignments with purpose in mind? That God does not just give busy work? That God did not just show up at practice and go, I wasn't able to prepare for this, so let's put some pylons out and you guys just start doing zigzags, run back and forth, give me 50. I've been on teams where coaches did that kind of thing. But does God ever do that? And the answer, of course, is no. God never comes to the classroom. God never comes to the court. God never comes to the field unprepared without knowing what it is that he is preparing you for. Without knowing precisely how what he is putting you through is going to shape you up for what he has for you. So one of the most important gifts that you and I can have, friends, is an absolute unshakable confidence that in all things that God allows into our lives, he has purpose, even if we don't know what that is. Now, with a teacher, a professor, with a coach, a manager, and with God, all of that confidence depends on one word, and that one word is trust. Do you trust the teacher? We all have plenty of teachers who have given us lots of reason not to trust them. Do you trust the coach? Many of us have had coaches that have given us plenty of reason not to trust them. But do you trust God? Do you trust that God has an end game? And do you trust that ultimately that end game is a good one for you and for his glory? And if you have that trust, even though you can't see the purpose, you can believe God's word that, in fact, he has that purpose. Romans 8, 28, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And the question is, so God is saying, I've got an end game. But do you trust that? Do you believe that? Even if you can't see why he's putting you through this particular regimen at this time to prepare for whatever games are going to be played in the future in the season that he has for you. 
Do you trust God? Do you trust the teacher? Do you trust him as coach? We say on page 11 and 12 that God indeed has purposes, and those purposes are forward purposes. God has something in mind, and he has told us something about some of those things that he has in mind as he puts us through the things that he allows. One of those, the top of page 11, is his desire to mature us. So when we go through adversity, when we go through trials, when we go through difficulty, one of God's purposes is to mature us. The example there is the gym. And if you've had occasion to be at a gym, I've had occasion to be at a gym. Very infrequently, as may be obvious, but and was obvious yesterday in the glory, no glory days softball that we, that we played. But uh, one of the things I learned years ago when I actually did frequent a gym was that uh, there's a, an actual uh, way that you need to set up your routine if you're, going to, if you're going to lift weights or use the weight machines. And that is you want to set up your routine in such a way as to have sets and repetitions so that the last regimen causes significant strain. And that's the way the bodybuilders build muscle. They do their sets and repetitions, and they set up the routine in such a way as the last routine causes significant strain in order for them to build muscle. And as God matures us, similar kind of thing happens. Notice the summary in the middle of page 11 with the illustration of the emperor moth. The cocoon of the emperor moth is flask-shaped. In order for the perfect insect to appear, it must force its way through the neck of the cocoon after hours of intense struggle. Once someone witnessed this insect's labor and out of pity snipped the cocoon's confining, confining threads to make the insect's exit easier. Soon the moth emerged, but it had a swollen body and small shriveled wings. Because this man had unwittingly eased the moth's struggle, its wings never developed. It spent its brief life crawling instead of flying through the air on rainbow wings. The man in his kindness did not understand that the moth needed the struggle in order to force fluid from its body into the wings so that flight would be possible. In the same way, we would not develop the emotional and spiritual maturity we need if God removed all the struggles from our lives. Suffering is not meant to be fun or easy. Without discomfort in our lives, we'd never develop a life of righteousness. No suffering or pain is needless. It all works to mature our souls and build inner beauty. May God use our struggles and trials to propel us forward so that we develop fully and completely in Christ. Now, at the top of that section, we have some, some passages. And two of those passages are in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2 and in Hebrews chapter 5. I will read these for you because I know it's hard to juggle your Bible and the notebook. If you want to take a look because you don't trust me, that's fine. Some of you have heard me say that there was a young preacher one time and he had just preached a few sermons and he was just getting used to delivering sermons and he went to an older preacher and he said, you know, people are falling asleep. And the older guy said, don't let it bother you. When they sleep, it means they trust you. Okay. So I've got a bunch of people in our church who apparently trust me. I say to you, some of you, that I recognize most of you by the top of your head more than by, by your face. 
from my vantage point here. So you've either turned to Hebrews 2 or you trust me. And Hebrews 2 and verse 17 says this, For this reason he had to be made like his brothers, speaking of Christ, in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So Jesus himself had to go through suffering. And then if you turn over to chapter 5, or listen as I read, in verse 8, although he was a son, again speaking of Christ, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, those verses from chapter 2 and verse 5 are saying that Jesus suffered. And in chapter 5, it's giving us the reason that he suffered. He learned obedience from what he suffered. Now, you... You read that as it applies to Jesus, and you say, did Jesus have to, have to learn obedience? But obedience simply means to place yourself under the authority uh, of another. And Jesus had placed him fully under the, the authority of God the Father for his life on, on earth. And through his, his suffering, he was made, when it says perfect, it doesn't mean that he was imperfect in the sense of having sin but rather he was, the word means, matured through that process. So the suffering process matured Jesus such that he displayed perfect obedience to the will of the Father. And then as a result of that, he was able to accomplish the purpose for which he came. So let me delve into that a little bit further. The purpose for which Jesus came. If I were to ask you, why did Jesus come? Most of you would say, rightly, he came to die for our sins. And that's why the cross is the universal symbol of Christianity, and that's why it's behind me. But in order for Jesus to die for our sins and for that death to be acceptable to God, Jesus had to first live a life of absolute righteousness. And that life of absolute righteousness was lived in the process of him being tempted and him suffering. And in all of that, the Bible tells us, he was tempted in every way like as we are, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 and yet was without sin. It was in that life then of suffering and temptation, but obedience to the will of the Father, that Jesus' life was matured and perfectly obedient to God the Father. And thus his death was acceptable to God the Father. To put it another way, Jesus succeeded where the first Adam had failed. So suffering produced something eternally important in the life of Jesus. And what we're being told in Scripture is that God produces something eternally important in our lives as well. That God, in, in our suffering, that God is doing for us in our suffering what he did for, for Jesus. So there's meaning in your suffering, whatever sort it is. And the supreme example of that is in the life of the Lord Jesus himself. Now, one other passage, and that is James chapter 1. James chapter 1, we alluded to this passage a couple of weeks ago, 
But it's a classic passage in the Bible about the issue of, of suffering, and it has a number of key words that relate to this forward direction that God has for us in suffering. James 1 and verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, do you see a parallel there in what James is saying to us in our suffering to what the writer of Hebrews said about Jesus and his suffering? That he was made mature through the things that he suffered, and the Bible is saying the same thing is accomplished in our lives through the trials that God allows to come into our lives. Now, I'd like to just point out some of the words in those three verses that are significant in order for us to understand what they mean. The first one is in verse 3, it says, You know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. You know. And the word that's translated, the Greek word that's translated know there, is a knowledge that comes from experience. And so what James is saying is this, that you can know in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your difficulty, that God is accomplishing something extremely important. So it's not just an intellectual knowledge. This is a knowledge that comes through experience, and the experience here is an experience of difficulty, but you can know with certainty in the midst of that difficulty that God is accomplishing something. Now, what is that something? Verse 3 says, You know that the testing of your faith develops this, perseverance. That word is sometimes translated patience. The Greek word that's translated endurance, is sometimes translated endurance, perseverance, patience, is a word that means this, to bear up under difficulty. To bear up under strain, under difficulty. So when we go through trials, and when we pass the test that God has for us, it's the testing of what you believe, the testing of your faith, it develops this ability to bear up under difficulty. And then, in verse 4, that ability to bear up under difficulty has an end game. It must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, here's what, here's what that means. Not that you'll be sinless, obviously, but here's what it means. God's preparing you in the present trial for you to endure and undergo a future ministry. God is preparing you in the present trial for you to undergo a future ministry. God has something for you to do. And you go, I wish I knew what it was. Exactly. But remember the coach and remember the teacher? You trust that there's an end game here? You trust that there's a good reason for what they're bringing? And now what God is saying is, I'm testing your faith, I'm testing your belief, I'm testing whether or not you trust me in the midst of what's going on now, that I'm preparing you for ministry in the future. Hear this, friends. Every last thing that God allows into your life today 
is preparation for something he's going to have you do tomorrow in the future. Every last thing. Now, God doesn't, I don't know yet what that's going to be. I don't, for me, I don't know what that's going to be for you. But do you trust that God does? I do know this, that there are some things that the Bible tells us that he most definitely will have you do, whatever your difficulty, whatever your trial. And I said one last passage when we looked at James 1. I think this really is the last passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Even though you won't know until you get there what it is God was preparing you for in the trial of yesterday, God does give us some general goals, some general purposes that apply to all of our trials and all of our difficulty. And one of those general goals is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 3 and 4. And verse 3 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of all comfort. Verse 4 says, Who comforts us in all our trouble so that we may comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. What a beautiful promise. God says that I have specific things for you to do in my providence. I'm arranging your circumstances so that the trial of today is preparation for ministry tomorrow. And the specifics of that will become clearer in the days ahead and in the years ahead. But in the meantime, you can know this. No matter what, one of the things I'm going to have you do is I'm going to have you be a source of comfort to those in any trouble as you relate to them the comfort that you yourself have received from God. So there is no such thing as meaningless suffering in the life of God's people. God desires a number of things. He always has an end game. The trials he allows are not busy work. They are not because of a lack of preparation or a lack of where this is all leading on God's part ever. And one of those purposes is that God desires to mature us. If you look at the bottom of page 11, God desires to mature us. And God desires, I'm saying, to use us then, having matured us in ministry in, in the future. And the question then is, do you trust God for that? And has God given you ample reason to trust him with that? That he's a purposeful God, that he has things in hand. Just a cursory reading of God's word and a reflection on your Christian experience will answer that question in the affirmative. But at the bottom of page 11, he not only desires to mature, he desires for us to be Christ-like. In order for us to be Christ-like, it means that he is going to remove any unnecessary edges from our lives in order to make a fuller picture of Christ emerge in our reflection. The example we have at the bottom of page 11 is the lump of coal. All right, so imagine a lump of coal minding its own business, all of a sudden being chiseled away from a wall of coal, being taken out of a place where it felt perfectly fine, if coal, if coal could feel, and wondering what the purpose for all of, this, all of this is. And then it undergoes some intense heat and more chiseling. But 
It is out of a lump of coal that come diamonds. Do you know that diamonds uh, don't grow? Diamonds are actually made. And they're actually made out of, out of coal. In fact, the Greek word for diamond is adamas, which means unconquerable. And so God is making us into the reflection of Christ in the difficulties that, that he allows. And in that process, he is whittling away at the rough edges in our lives in order to make us reflect Christ. Many of you know the name Helen Keller. Do you remember the story of Helen Keller? That as a young girl, she became very sick. Uh, she recovered from the illness that she had, but as a result of that illness, she was never again able to see or hear. And isolated from the voices and images of everyone that she loved, she became overwhelmed by her life, and she became filled with rage. Life, she thought, was surely over for her. But her parents hired a teacher, Ann Sullivan, many of you know the story, who taught her to communicate by reading words written on her hands. Eventually, she was able to attend college and write her autobiography, The Story of My Life. She became a world-famous speaker, and her story inspired many because of the great obstacles that she had overcome. Truly, Helen Keller knew of suffering, but rather than being embittered by her loss, she learned to recognize suffering's character-building effects. And here's what she said. Character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through experiences of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, vision cleared, ambition inspired, and success achieved. Even when she was both blind and deaf, Helen Keller could honestly say she was grateful. Here's what she says. The struggle of life is one of our greatest blessings. It makes us patient, sensitive, and godlike. Now here's someone who actually experienced that in very extreme ways. But God used that and her attitude in that and her perspective on that to make her better rather than bitter in her, in her suffering. At the top of page 12, here's the summary of that then. Becoming Christ-like has to be intentional, though it may ne not necessarily be actively pursued. God may use difficult circumstances, even suffering, to push us in that direction. Suffering is not always virtuous, but what it produces is. When suffering has performed its work in turning our characters of coal into the character of diamonds, we'll more naturally do what Jesus does. When we ask what would Jesus do, the answer will be clear and decisive. We des desire to grow our souls so that we will inspire to aspire to make choices, think thoughts, and feel feelings that are in harmony with, with Christ-centered life regardless of the road conditions. So that requires that we step back and we ask ourselves, what is the purpose that God has in general for me and all of life? And if you answer anything other than to become like Christ, then you're giving the wrong answer. The right answer is everything that God allows into our lives is not only preparation for ministry in the future, but it is also designed for us to become more like Christ. And in fact, that's God's ultimate purpose for his creation. For the crowning achievement of his creative activity, humanity, to become like Jesus Christ, reflecting God's character back to him. Now, I want to briefly rehearse that with you, and then we'll look at the third purpose that God has.
for suffering for us. But let me remind you that, in fact, God's purpose for humanity was and is that we become like him and reflect him back to him. Now, how do I know that? You remember that in the opening chapter of the Bible, when God created the world, and on the final day of creation, he created humanity, that he created humanity different than the rest of creation. He created humanity in his image. To be made in his image means that humanity, unlike all the rest of creation, has a unique ability to think like God, talk like God, and act like God. We never are God. We never become God. But we can reflect God back to God. That's what it means to be made in his image. Well, so far, so good. Except those mirrors, and that's the way I like to think of it, God made us as mirrors so that when he looks at us, he sees himself. Those mirrors are now broken, marred, distorted by the entrance of sin. And so now God looks at us, and he doesn't see a clear reflection of himself. He sees those kind of circus mirrors, carnival mirrors. So you walk by, and you can sort of make out who you are, but, you know, you're all over the place, and then you're big, and then you're small, and your face, and, right? It's distorted. It's broken. The mirrors have to be repaired. And that's what Christ does in salvation. Christ is engaged in the ultimate mirror repair project. And that's why Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 says that God's purpose in saving us is, I'm quoting, that we might be conformed to the image of his Son that we might become like Jesus, that we might reflect God back to God. That's what we were initially created for. And so when you were saved, when you came to God through Jesus Christ, He saved you for the purpose of you gradually, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, becoming like Christ so that when God looks at you, He sees Himself. And ultimately, He's going to have a perfect mirror in you and me. And we shall be like him, as we saw in the first hour, for we shall see him as he is. We will be glorified. We will be just like Jesus in our character. But in the meantime, he is shaping that. He's repairing that mirror. And part of that mirror repair project is to remove the edges from our sinful lives. And one of the means that God uses is suffering in order for that to happen. And so do you believe that that's God's purpose? And do you believe that God is actively pursuing that purpose in your life? Listen, you can know that God is absolutely actively pursuing that purpose and will never rest until it's achieved. Never rest until it's achieved in your life. Here's why. Because God's got a dog in that fight. Everybody know what I mean by that? I don't think I know what I mean by that. No, God cares about this. God has an intense interest in this is what I'm saying. And the reason he has an intense interest in this is because everything that God does has one ultimate purpose, the glory of God. And the glory of God is the display of his character. And he made humanity to reflect his character back to him. It's another way of saying we were made to glorify God. And God will not rest until the whole earth is full of what? Full of his glory. So that when he looks around, everywhere he looks, all he sees is a reflection of himself. You say, 
God's kind of narcissistic, isn't he? I mean, he just likes to see himself. Yeah, you betcha. And you know why? Because there is no higher thing to which God can aspire but himself. All things are God-referential. All things are for God and through God and to God. They begin with him and they end with him and they are made for him. And that's what he's doing in your life and my life. Now, page 12, finally. God desires maturity. God desires Christ-likeness. And then lastly, God desires for us to have a personalized faith. The example we have there is from the Titanic. The movie, The Titanic, at the end of the movie, as the ship is sinking and as they've gone through all of the drama of the couple that the, the plot is centered around, and as the ship is sinking, you, all the while you've had the band playing to try to comfort the people who are in distress. And as you get toward the very end, the band leader says to the band, it's been marvelous playing with you and thanking them for all the memories and all the things they've been able to do together. And then the band members start to disperse, knowing their fate. Uh, and the band leader begins to play, Nearer my God to thee. And then the band members hear this, and they come back, and they begin to play this song with them. Nearer my God to thee, as they have death impending. Well, that is a time of adversity, to put it mildly, which reveals the personal nature of one's faith. A personalized faith. Where am I in my relationship with God? And God desires for us to have this personalized faith. Not a faith that is only confessional and congregational. Not a faith that is only when we are together and what we are about. But God wants you, me, us, individually, to have an individualized, personalized faith in Him. And that is why, in evangelicalism, we rightly make much of receiving Jesus Christ as your what? Personal Savior. Because faith is not something that somebody else gives to you. It's not something that you acquire by virtue of just being around other people that have it but rather it is something that must be yours individually and personally. And one of the ways that you reveal whether or not you have that faith is through the process of, adver of adversity. And there may be things about the adversity that will reveal deficiencies in what you believe and in your faith. And God desires for those deficiencies to be filled, to be strengthened and exposed. That's why in James chapter 1 it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you fall into trials of various kinds because you know, and here's the phrase, the testing of what you believe, the testing of your faith. So what's being tested is what you really believe. And in that, in that, in that dire moment, as this ship is sinking, this band leader's faith was exposed and exposed in a positive way. Nearer my God today. So think about the trials that you're going through now. Think about the trials that you've gone through in the past. And ask yourself, what do they expose regarding what I believe about God? What's my personal belief about God? 
It is one thing, friends, for us to come to church and at the end of the prayer, all God's people said and say amen. It's another thing to be diagnosed with cancer and to be able to say, I believe that God is good and that God is in control. Now, do people really do that? Ah, thanks be to God they do. And I had the privilege of visiting one this week. Um, Is Peggy here? Peggy probably has to leave after. Is Peggy there? There she is. Look at her. So I'm going to embarrass Peggy. But I'm, I'm bigger than Peggy, so she can't hurt me. She may send Larry to do it. But you all know the trial that dear Peggy is going through. And I had a chance to spend about an hour, probably longer than I should have, in her hospital room this week with her and Larry. And just had a great time talking to them. Talking to them about, about life, about the future, about what the Lord may have in store in the future, and we don't know. But they talk about that. They think about that. And then I read Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to the end of the chapter. And when I was done, I was struck by the fact that as soon as I was finished, Peggy said, our God's in control. And she's perfectly content in the fact that our God is in control. Now, that's a personalized faith. Exposed, made known in the midst of adversity, in the midst of difficulty. But it could be quite different, couldn't it? She could take quite an opposite approach to that. Why, God, are you doing this to me? You know the things that I still need to accomplish here. You know the love that I have for my family and the things we want to do. And these are good things that we desire to do. So, God, why are you doing this? Those would be legitimate questions, and we would not know the answers to those, will we? But in the midst of that, do you believe, do you have faith that God has our good ultimately and his glory as his, as his goal. And Peggy Charbonneau and Larry Charbonneau believe that. And because they do, they are ministering to people right now in the midst of that difficulty. Years ago, I read a book by a man who had cancer. Some of you know John Piper. And when John Piper had cancer, out of that, he wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Cancer. He had written a book called Don't Waste Your Life. And then he wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Cancer. And the idea of the book was, you're diagnosed with this, with this scary uh, sickness. But don't waste it. See it as an opportunity to reflect Christ. See it as an opportunity to help others be strengthened in their personal faith in Christ. And that's exactly what Larry and Peggy are doing in the midst of this. Now, we're going to close with prayer, as we always do. And when we do, we're going to have a time of prayer for our sister. And we're going to pray that God would continue to work in her body, but also that he would continue to use her and them in this circumstance to minister to others and to be an inspiration to those of us who don't really know what suffering is like until you go through something like that. And that God will use them and that God will work his will and that we, all of us, will be content and secure in the will of our sovereign God. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you that we can approach your throne with absolute confidence because we approach your throne through our high priest, the Lord Jesus. He is able to intercede for us. He is the right hand of the Father because he has done what we were made to accomplish. 
he has succeeded where our father Adam failed. And so we thank you that because of his perfect life and his death on our behalf, that he has accomplished your will and he has become obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And therefore, you have exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we come to you on that basis, knowing that we, you hear us through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his example of suffering with purpose and the maturity that he gained through the things that he suffered and the perspective that he maintained in all that he endured, that he was in all points tempted like we are and yet remained without sin. And so, Lord, we thank you for your precious promises in your word, for the example of the Lord Jesus, for the fact that we have the absolute assurance that You are with us every moment of every day and you hear our cries in the midst of suffering and difficulty. And Lord, we ask you to help us to believe those promises in the midst of adversity. Lord, we read them. We say amen to them. But then you test them. You test whether or not I really believe what I preach and what I teach and that we really believe what we hear and what we amen in the midst of difficulty. Lord, we thank you for the example of our sister, uh, Peggy. And we thank you, Lord, for the personalized faith that is evident in her life in the midst of this difficulty that many of us can't understand. And as we honestly look at our own hearts, we wonder how we would respond. And yet, Lord, we are inspired and strengthened and encouraged as we see her unshakable trust in you. And so, Lord, we thank you for the ministry that she has had and is having and that they are having. And we pray that you would allow them future ministry in this regard to comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that you are giving them even now. I pray, Lord, that you would comfort their family as well, for Shelley, for for Patrick, and that you would cause them to know that they are in your hand and that it can never be removed from your hand, and that you will provide all good things that they need. And Lord, we would pray that her body would be healed. We believe that you can heal her. We know that you can. We would ask you to do so. But Lord, we do not demand anything from you. We humbly ask you to do this favor. Whatever you do, help us to show ourselves, each of us, as people who believe in our God because you've shown yourself to be eminently believable. And Lord, we will give you the glory and the praise for whatever you choose to do. And we pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.